Well, I'd invite you to turn with me again this evening in your Bible to the book of Hebrews. We'll be looking at the 13th chapter and the first verse this evening. And with our Bibles turned to Hebrews chapter 13, let us pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word again as we close out the Lord's day together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, the bounty of your word, which we are about to receive. Lord, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so we ask that you would nourish this word to our bodies and our souls, that we might walk in a manner worthy of the gospel to which we've been called, faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and loving toward one another, our brothers and sisters in the Lord, that the world might see and give glory to you, our Father in heaven. Open our eyes, we pray again, that we might behold the wonderful things contained in your law. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. We'll look at, I'll read the first several verses uh, of Hebrews chapter 13, but we're really just going to be looking at verse 1. But as per our time this morning, we want to make sure we have some context. So beginning in Hebrews 13, verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Please take heed how you hear it. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Now, I did not know that a, a friend of a family member in the church was in Philadelphia recently and shot. 
but it does bode well for my introduction. Insofar as we've called this sermon Philadelphia or bust. You know the word Philadelphia, of course, uh, meaning brotherly love, which seems to be somewhat ironic in light of recent prayer requests. Uh, I grew up on the right side of the river from Philadelphia, and I mean that geographically and ontologically. I'm from the south part of New Jersey, uh, which is the better half of that portion of America. And so Philly has had a a spot in my heart for a long time, Um, especially the Philadelphia Phillies. I know there's a danger in saying that in this part of the country, uh, but they've been in my heart for many, many years. Uh, Philadelphia, as you know, is the city of brotherly love, coming from the Greek words to love and brother, brothers and sisters. And it's an actual word that's used here in Hebrews 13, verse 1, uh, that we should show brotherly love to one another. I should also mention that my wife is from Pittsburgh, which is on the other side of Pennsylvania. And you may not know anything about sports in Pennsylvania, but Pittsburgh and Philly do not share some cross-state affinity for one another. They are, in fact, mortal enemies. My poor father-in-law is physically unable to say the word Philadelphia. It comes out Philadelphia. Uh, he just he can't help himself. But Philly is not the warm and tender and loving place that its delightful name might imply. In fact, for those who are from or around Philly, it's often sort of pejoratively referred to as the city of brotherly shove. Um, I had a cousin from the western part of Pennsylvania who moved to Philadelphia. This is maybe a decade or more ago. And she was walking the streets of Philly wearing a Steelers sweatshirt. And a gentleman, I use the term loosely, uh, at an outdoor restaurant threw a glass ketchup bottle at her. Her. By walking down the street with the wrong sports gear on. Uh, So this is the Philadelphia that we're used to. But not the Philadelphia that's commended to us in this text. Now I say all these things about Philly and it's kind of common handle the city of brotherly shove really to highlight a problem that I think is prevalent in the Christian church and that's this. The same sort of tongue-in-cheek nomenclature could be rightly applied to many Christian churches and many within the church just like we're sort of jokingly doing for the city up in Pennsylvania right now. You're aware of this, right? That many in the church, the place where we're meant to love one another as members of one body, as examples of God's love for us in Christ, as a witness to the world around us, are far more known for our divisiveness, our vitriol towards one another, our anger, and our sort of attitude towards other Christians that don't look or sound or think like us in the world at large. We're far more interested in preserving our own interests and defending our own positions Now, this is not to say that positions don't need to be defended or that false teaching should not be called out plainly and even forcefully. The problem is that for some, it's not the defending of doctrine that matters most, but owning those against whom it's being defended. Many in the church wouldn't give the shirt off their back, no matter how desperate the condition of someone walking by. Instead, choosing to lecture others on how they simply need to get themselves into a better station in life or choosing to remind them that their plight is much, if not all, their own fault. While scripture and life, of course, reflect a sowing and reaping sort of logic, we seem quite easily to forget that in Christ, we don't reap what we've sown. We don't reap what we've sown because of Christ. Rather, we reap what he has sown, and he reaped what we have sown. And how slow we are to apply that same mercy 
towards other people, whether inside the church or outside. So the question I want to ask us this evening is this. I want you to be asking this evening, is my default posture towards others brotherly love? Is my default posture towards other people? Of course, in the church, principally the household of faith, first and foremost, but all mankind, all those who bear the image of God. And this goes all the way back to the earliest parts of Genesis that we don't shed man's blood because man is made in the image of God, the Lord says. Is my default posture towards mankind one of brotherly love? Now, again, I believe the author of Hebrews is highlighting the sacred relationships that exist within the church in much of his writing. He emphasizes that great hall of faith, as we mentioned this morning in chapter 11. Clearly, those who are part of the body of Christ, the one church of God throughout the ages. Chapter 12, he talks to us about Christian worship, how we together approach that heavenly mountain. We belong to the kingdom. And here in chapter 13, he's, of course, talking about brothers in the church and leaders within the church. So I concede that the principal sphere in which this brotherly love is to continue is within the church. However, look with me quickly at verse 2. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, not just those who are part of the Christian fellowship. So at some level, this command or this injunction to show brotherly love, to let brotherly love continue, applies to our interaction with all human beings. So let's look at what brotherly love is according to Scripture and why it's so important, why the author of the Hebrews makes this bold statement at the end of this long paragraph about worship and on the front end of this paragraph about obeying our leaders and remembering Christ's reproach and him going outside the camp. Why does he transition there with let brotherly love continue? You know, the author of the Hebrews was quite familiar with the rest of the New Testament, at least the Gospels. And that's evident through the references he makes to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ throughout the opening chapters, his articulation of Christ as the better Moses and better than the angels and better than the prophets and better than any sacrifices and the greatest high priest there is. And so he knows the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and he's aware of what the Gospels say. And I can't believe that the author to Hebrews was not aware of Jesus' upper room discourse. Those last words that Christ gave to his followers before going to the cross. And you can put yourself in this position and think to yourself, if you were given 10 minutes left to live, what would you talk to the people that you were given opportunity to talk about? You certainly wouldn't rattle off all of those hidden sports statistics that, rest, that lie in the back of your mind somewhere. Would you? Maybe you would. You certainly wouldn't go find someone to argue with about that thing that they did that really upset you that one time, would you? I hope you wouldn't. You'd probably reach out to those most near and dear to you and give them the most important and loving thing that you could say to them. You'd call your children, you'd call your spouse, you'd call your parents and tell them how important and dear they are to you, how much you love them and one thing you want them to remember in your absence. And that's what Jesus does in his upper room discourse. And he says a number of noteworthy things. But of course, we're going to draw our attention to one in John 13, 35. Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I think the author of the Hebrews is aware of this statement by Jesus Christ. And in John 13, Jesus is telling his disciples the way in which the world knows that we've been brought into fellowship with God is through our love for one another. You see, brotherly love is a matter of Christian witness. 
It's not just a matter of making things comfortable within this setting. It's not just a matter of one another enjoying the presence and company of fellow believers. It's a matter of the world out there watching us in here and recognizing something different about us. Now, if you were to survey the blogosphere or Christian Twitter, as it's known, or the Christian lecture circuit, you might come to the conclusion that John 13, 35 reads like this. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you are right in all matters of doctrine. Or perhaps Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3.19, for us to know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with the ability to crush all your theological opponents. Well, that's not what it says, of course. It says that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. And what is the fullness of God? The fullness of God, according to the author of Hebrews, is Jesus Christ, in whom, Colossians tells us, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And how did he act towards us, sinners? He loved us. He gave his life for us. You see, one of the means that God has designed to point other people to the Lord Jesus Christ is by our love for one another. Jesus uh, riffs on this idea in his high priestly prayer. In John chapter 17, towards the end of his prayer, he says this, The glory, speaking to God, that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, loved them even as you loved me. You see, our oneness is reflective of God's love for us and his love for Christ. He says in verse 26, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. Let brotherly love continue is nothing less than a reminder to love each other the way that God loves us. Think about how God loves us. That's how we're to love one another. And we'll unpack this more and more as we work through our time together. But the point is simply that it's a matter of Christian witness. It's a matter of the world looking to the church as an example of what love really is. We live in an age where we're redefining what love is. Uh, perhaps they're not as popular here as they are up in Greensboro, but there are signs in the front lawn of nearly every other house that remind me all the time that certain people matter, that love is what I say it is, and that you have no right to tell me otherwise. Among other things, science is real, for example. <laughs> but the Lord intends us to love one another in the way that he loved us. If we were to turn to Ephesians 5, husbands in this room would be reminded that the love with which we're meant to love our wives is reflective of the love that Christ, with which Christ, Christ loved us, which is self-sacrificing. A love that goes all the way to the cross. A love that is concerned principally with the sanctification and beautification of his people, not necessarily the creature comforts of the one that he has died to save. That's the way that we're meant to love. God defines love. He is love, 1 John tells us, and he loved us in a certain way. And that's what Christian love is supposed to look like. And when other people see that, our affection, our compassion, our caring, our concern, our generosity with one another, even the 10 or 12 minutes we spend as a congregation praying for one another is reflective of our love for each other. 
And the world is meant to see that. I remember hearing somebody, and the name escapes me now because I hadn't thought about it prior to this moment, who said when non-Christians come into our services, they should be overwhelmingly bored with how much we pray. And how much should we be talking to God about our concerns for one another, one another's needs, bearing one another's burdens, loving one another? And our non-Christian visitors who come in here should say, at the very least, I have no idea what they were doing, but they sure care about whatever it was they were doing and about each other. (laughs) Do we love each other like that? Many of you know that I'm a veteran, like many of you are. As I mentioned earlier, being a Pittsburgh fan in Philly is quite dangerous. Uh, at, At risk of life and limb, I'll tell you that I was in the Marine Corps. Uh, I spent, thank you. Um, One way I can tell others who were in the Marines, or at least other veterans, we're known by our bumper stickers, aren't we? You can tell driving down the road, even if you weren't here in Fayetteville, you would know driving down the road who's a veteran. You could tell by their bumper stickers or their 550 core jewelry. (laughs) Everybody knows those twisted green bracelets that they wear with the clips on them and so forth. It's a telltale sign of veterans or military members. Perhaps an inordinate number of bad tattoos is another sign of prior military service. But I can tell by haircuts and artwork who used to be a jarhead. More significantly, the enemy knows who's in the military by our shared uniform, don't they? We make no mistake when we walk down a dirt road or through some jungle exactly who we're fighting for and what we belong to. It's what has made the most recent conflicts all the way back into the 60s so difficult because our enemies wore no uniform, and it's harder to tell. But we're bold about our affiliation and our allegiance to our country and to one another, and so we wear the same uniform as we patrol boldly down the road. And the enemy knows who we are by the way we look and behave. The question for you, then, is does your love for one another, Providence Church, betray your allegiance to Christ? Would people know that you're a Christian by your love? If three or four families from this church were standing in the middle of town talking or fellowshipping over a meal, would passers-by wonder if you're Christians? Quite practically, this reminder to let brotherly love continue is a reminder to obey Christ, isn't it? It's a reminder not to forget to be Christ-like in our posture towards one another and towards others. The world is meant to know that we're disciples of Christ by our love. Why then is this such a struggle for many? I'm sure that at this point, several of you have thought, I know that this is true. And deep down you're thinking, and I know it's not true of me. Why is it such a struggle for many of us? I think the answer, at least in part, is in the fact that we fail to remember the love that's been shown to us and how little we deserve it. Of course, we talked a bit about this this morning, didn't we? The privilege it is to look under Christ. We who don't deserve that privilege at all. But brotherly love in Scripture is a response to heavenly love. Our brotherly love toward one another is in response to the heavenly love that we've received. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. Of course, 1 John chapter 3 says countless things about love. In fact, you may not know this, but uh, 1 Corinthians, that great love chapter in 1 Corinthians, pales in comparison to the amount of uh, reference that John makes to love here in First John chapter 3. It begins by saying, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. And, and let me pause for a second just to prepare you. If you're not reading your Bible, you don't have to read along. It's just fine to listen along. 
And in fact, it might be more impactful. So just hold on for a second. This next phrase in 1 John 3.1 is among the singular most powerful statements in all of Scripture. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Isn't that amazing? That God's love for us is so great that you and me, the least deserving, are really now in actuality children of God. That's the sort of love that God has shown us. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. He goes on. Let's jump down to verse 11 uh, together and look through verse 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. That we should love one another. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. It's one of the three tests that John gives us in 1 John. It's our love for one another grants us increased assurance of our own relationship with God. Everyone, he says in verse 15, who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. You ask yourself the question, what is this brotherly love that's meant to continue? Here's how you know it. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in, near, in need, excuse me. I should have had a little, um, uh, what are they called, a trigger warning here at the beginning of verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? It's a rhetorical question. And the answer, of course, is it doesn't. Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. There's a lot going on here in this lengthy text, but let me draw our attention to two things. First, notice that our love for one another is in response to what God has done for us. Consider the love that God has shown you in his son. It is a love that reached across the expanse of the universe. Do you know that if you were to travel at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, that way, for 16 billion years, you would not reach the edge of the known universe in its expanse. And if you were to continue going at the speed of light beyond the edge of that universe for another 16 billion years, and you were to increase in perfection every moment of that journey, you would be no closer to God at the end of 32 billion years than you are right now. He is so completely transcendent and other that everything that is not God exists in one sphere and he alone is himself in another sphere. And there is no bridging the gap from this one to that one by any means at all ever under any circumstances. You cannot go from you to God. And instead, knowing that distance is so great, God's love for you is such that he crossed that expanse in the form of his son 
in the person of Jesus Christ in order to rescue you from his own wrath that you deserve to sit under forever. That's the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. He went beyond the edge of all space and time to bring you into fellowship with him. It's a sacrificial sort of love that knows no bounds. A love that was not only redemptive and adoptive, but was made manifest while you and I were still his enemies and sinners, Paul says in Romans chapter 5. So what keeps you from showing that sort of love? Let me offer a few common causes. Someone annoys you. Can't show love to them. They annoy me. Someone disagrees with me. Oh, goodness. No love for them, because clearly, they don't have it all together. Someone doesn't deserve your love, perhaps, because of the way that they've treated you. Um, Maybe they've been really mean to you. Maybe they've been terribly unkind. Maybe they've been really hurtful and harmful to you. And so they don't deserve your love. See what kind of love the Father has given unto us. John says, when the author of the Hebrews says, let brotherly love continue, he's reminding you and me that the love that we have received that enables us to call one another brothers and sisters is a love that has crossed the expanse of the universe and overcome our sin and murderous intent. As I said this morning, we know what mankind, what you and I would do if we could get our hands on God. We'd kill him. And that, in spite of all that, He loves us? How can we possibly, in our right minds, in in our renewed minds and thinking, say, yes, I know that the Lord loves us like that, but he doesn't understand how much that person bothers me. He doesn't understand how much that person's disrespected me or how much I disagree with this person because they've done something that I consider to be foolish. John starts his third epistle by saying to Gaius, the elder that he loves, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. And I preached on this one time and I asked the question, if if I were to pray for you that your physical health may become commensurate with your spiritual health, how many of you would end up in the ICU tonight? Yeah, lots of us. Go on then. The question is appropriate here in Hebrews chapter 13. If brotherly love, if your love for others was suddenly made commensurate with your physical health, how big of a problem would you find yourself in tonight when we left this building? We're willing to cast people out of our lives forever because they do something that bothers us. And God, in his mercy and love, was willing to welcome us into his presence forever in spite of our sin and at the cost of his life. Christ has taken away every excuse to not love by his love for us. Leaders lead by example, don't they? On sports teams, in the military, in business, parents in the home. It's not uncommon, for example, on a Saturday for me to gather my children together to do work outside in the rain or sunshine. Now, I 
parse out the work appropriately. They pick up sticks, I mow the lawn, they use a little shovel, I use a big shovel and so forth. But it's beneficial to them to see me working alongside them outside. To know that I'm not just making them do something that I myself am unwilling to do or haven't done in the past. I remember this in my early days in the military. What a help for, for me it was to see a squad leader over there filling sandbags with me in the blazing sun or doing some sort of work or knowing that when he was where I am, he was doing the same sort of miserable tasks. He was practicing what he preached. And that's what Christ has done for us. Christ doesn't sit in heaven in the safety of the throne room of God, looking down on his people saying, y'all should love each other more. I mean, do that. Figure it out. Be kind to each other and so forth. Love each other. Uh, You know what I mean by that, right? Love each other. He doesn't do that. He's not that sort of leader, is he? He's not that sort of example. Rather, he said, I'm going to show you exactly what I intend for you to do toward one another. And I'm going to do it at the cost of my life's blood. Christ came down and showed us love. You siblings who butt heads with your brothers or your sisters. Do you realize that Christ died for that sin that you're committing when you are unkind and unloving towards your sibling? Spouses, why is it that the person we've agreed to commit our life and affection to for the rest of this earthly journey are sometimes the one that get the shortest end of the stick, aren't they? And we argue with each other and butt heads and grind against each other. And we're in disharmony and have no peace in our homes and show no love to those that we should love the most in this world. And it's because we forget, it's because we forget the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. We see also in this text that Christian love, and I'm referring to 1 John right now. Christian love is not just the greatest form of liking people. What do I mean by that? There are not tiers of Christian love, as in dislike, like, like, like a lot, really, really like, brotherly love. That would be nice because then you could find yourself going, well, I'm on the spectrum. I mean, I like them. They're not maybe my favorite. And I don't know if brotherly love is how I'd say it. But in the, under the umbrella of brotherly love, I'm like a four. So I'll, that, you know, I'll work towards a five. In fact, what John says in 1 John chapter 3, he basically bifurcates this idea and says, there is love like Christ or hating your brother. Love like Christ did, self-sacrificing, lay down your life and so forth, hate your brother. You're either of God and you know that you are. One of the ways that we know that we are is because we increase in brotherly love. Or you're of the evil one like Cain who murdered his brother because he was angry. That's problematic for those of us who are like, well, you know, sanctification is progressive. So I'm making my way towards loving other people. I'm slowly making my way across the spectrum of loving other people. But really, deep inside my heart, I'm hoping that they'll die or I'll die before I have to get all the way to that side of the spectrum. Because I just don't know if I can do it. No, I'm being serious. You know in your hearts that this is true. That there are people out there that you have thought to yourself, I would rather die before I reconcile with that person. So hopefully they do or I knew before I have to get to that side of the spectrum. And so we've convinced ourselves theologically that we exist on this scope of being. When John says, you love like God does or you're like Cain. That's problematic for those of us who are dragging our Christian feet. There's no neutral anthropology in God's word. When we withhold love from our brothers, we're showing hatred. Jesus, in explaining the heart application of the Ten Commandments in Matthew 5, says, You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. 
and whoever murders will be liable for judgment. And they all went, yeah, I've never done that. I mean, my hands are clean. There's no, not a drop of blood on them. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment, and everyone who insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be li liable to the hell of fire. And perhaps you've heard the short version of that, which says if you're angry with your brother in your heart, you've already committed murder. And you're like, oh, that's pretty problematic. And then he says if you're insulting to other people. And then he says uh, if you call someone a fool. That's the level of brotherly love that Christ expects from us, that the author of Hebrews articulates for us in chapter 13. It's not enough to not hate we're called to love each other, to love each other, especially here in the body of Christ, as Paul says in Galatians. Westminster Larger Catechism, question 136, asks, what are the sins forbidden in the sixth commandment? The sins that are forbidden in the sixth commandment, which is, of course, do not murder. The sins forbidden in the sixth commandment are all taking away of the life of ourselves or of others, except in the case of public justice and so on and so forth. And we think, yes, of course, don't murder. I got that part. And then it says... Sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire for revenge, all excessive passions, distracting cares, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, and recreations, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatsoever else tends to the destruction of the life of any. And it doesn't mean the ending of the life of any, but the destruction, the harm of someone's life to include provoking words and oppression and envy my friends we've got a christian love problem don't we and the author of hebrews says let brotherly love continue let brotherly love continue let it increase in us and in the church that people might see our love for one another and that happens in part through reconciliation within the body of christ doesn't it we like to say at Christ's Covenant Church as we're standing uh, behind the table preparing to serve the Lord's Supper that there is only to be one broken body in this room and it's represented here on the table. But in some churches, you'd never know that they worship the same God, let alone in the same place with each other. Let brotherly love continue. How convicting that it conclude, includes all these things. Well, lastly... Christian love is very practical, isn't it? Perhaps you're asking yourself the question, I know that I should love others because the world will see it and they might be drawn in their affections towards God because of the love of the church. And that Christian love or brotherly love is meant to be reflective of and in response to God's love for us. Look what he's done. Look who he's done it to. In other words, look in the mirror and recognize how little we deserve it and then share that same love with other people. And then you say, I'm ready to do that. I want to do that. But what does Christian love look like? Well, the author of Hebrews helps us out here. He gives us some very practical, very practical uh, applications in the following verses. Notice in verse 2 and 3, there's a positive and negative injunction given. He says in verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And then in verse 3, remember those who are in prison and are mistreated. So we have this positive and negative. Remember and don't forget or don't neglect. Remember and don't neglect. Now, why does he do that? Why does he do that? Kids, you know why, right? 
How many times do your parents have to tell you to do something very simple often in your house? If you're, you don't have to raise your hand. Feel free if you want to. If it's more than once, this is the idea behind the author to Hebrews here in chapter 13. verse. I saw some hands about to go up. Yep, I got some in the back. This is the reason why. Because we're so slow of heart to believe and obey, aren't we? And so he gives us two reasons Two ways in which we're to apply this injunction of brotherly love by remembering and not neglecting. Part of the reason is because we're so wrapped up in ourselves, aren't we? It's easy to forget. Listen, when all things are peaceful in the home uh, and there's no distractions, the television's off, there's no music in the background, books are closed. If all of your children were just standing there like this, just standing in the middle of a room with no, no carpet, no furniture, no distractions, and you said, all right, kids, let's, let's uh, get to work. They'd all go, all right, here we go. And they would just follow along with you because there's nothing to prevent them from engaging with you by way of distraction, right? You know that that's true. You kids, think about this. Next time your parents have to tell you three or four times, you think, boy, if our house was empty of all furniture and entertainment, I would probably listen the first time every time, wouldn't I? Nothing to distract me. But we're distracted not just by toys and video games and TV and music, but mostly by ourselves, aren't we? And we forget to show love to others because we're so self-interested half the time that we're not paying attention to the needs of people around us. Our brother in the back here encouraged us earlier this evening to pray for people who have gone away from this place or who are hurting or who we don't even know that they have problems and fears and insecurities and sins and things that they need help with because they're too afraid to reach out and ask. And most of us aren't even aware that they have those problems because we're not paying attention to them. Oh, one of the worst indictments I've ever heard leveled against the church is that it's the warmest, most welcoming and friendly place on Sunday morning. What about Monday? Do the people around you right now, do you know what they're dealing with on Monday or Tuesday or Thursday or Friday? Do people around you know what you're going through throughout the week? Are they enabled? Are they given opportunity to show brotherly love towards you? And are you seeking out opportunities to show brotherly love towards each other? Not just fellowship and worship and over meals and in Sunday school, but as believers, as members of the same body. Listen to what he says. He says here in verse 3, Remember those who are in prison as though you are in prison with them and those who are mistreated because you're also in the same body. That's how close our relationships should be with one another but we're so wrapped up in ourselves our own trials our own needs our own wants that we often fail to remember the love that others need so the author gives us two ways to do this remember and do not forget he says uh, this remember is really summarized by the word hospitality isn't it remember do not uh, excuse me do not neglect i should say to show hospitality to strangers Care for those experiencing trial of various kinds, he says, as uh, the second injunction. These are remarkably practical. Very simply, some of this is just opening up your home and your life to other people, isn't it? Just opening up your home and your life to other people. Rick Phillips, in talking about this idea of hospitality, says, ask the question, how many people in your church could describe your living room? How many people in your church could describe what your living room or your kitchen looks like? Do we open our homes to one another, to brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we invite them in that we, we might care for them and share the abundance of God's goodness towards us? 
I'll tell you what, our weekend here, my wife and I came down yesterday in the afternoon, and our weekend here, our experience here in the home of Charlie and Jane King has been heavenly. It's been an expression of true Christian hospitality. Charlie and I have talked on the phone once, emailed three times, and seen each other at Presbytery one time before. And they opened up our home to my wife and I and our four crazy kids. And gave us a place to stay and meals to eat and dogs to play with and trails to walk and love and fellowship in Christ. You know, here in chapter 13, let me say this at risk of embarrassing my friend here. It says in verse 7 of Hebrews 13, remember your leaders... Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And I can say unequivocally that here at this church, you all should be interested in imitating the life and faith of Charlie and Jane King as hospitable Christians, as those who show brotherly love. You want to know what it looks like? Turn around. And I'm sure that's true of many of you, but my experience here compels me to encourage them from the pulpit. This is exactly what John was saying in 1 John 3.18, isn't it? He says, brothers, don't just love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. In your actions, love one another. Do you show love in deed, my friends? In your deeds? Do you show love to each other? Going beyond the lip service of, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart to him, does the love of God really abide in him? Are there people in this congregation who would disagree with your self-assessment? That's a tough question, isn't it? Because we often give ourselves the best glance. We often think most highly of ourselves among our friends and peers. But would the people around you agree with your assessment of your love for one another and your Christian hospitality. I hope that they would. I hope that you're able to be honest with yourselves as you allow the word of God to cut your heart. If we thought more like C.S. Lewis, we might just be more hospitable and loving towards one another. He says, the dullest and most interesting person. Now, when I read that, don't think of someone, okay? (laughs) The dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. And he goes on from there. Mm -hmm. He simply reminds us that what we will be, we haven't seen yet. But when we see him, we'll be made like him. And when you and I are walking around in heaven, the angels will be tempted to worship as we reflect the glory of Christ. Mm -hmm. And the people around you are on their way there. Do you treat them as such? Do you love them as such in the way that Christ loves you and indeed loves them? Let brotherly love continue. In doing so, we fulfill the second table of the law, guarding against violations of all sort of horizontal sins that we might commit in this world. And letting brotherly love continue, we return to that great commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves, which is itself an outflowing of loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want to encourage you this evening to remember Christ as you consider what this means for you. Remember Christ, whose love for you was so great, even when you were his sworn enemy, that he gave up his life, paid the penalty for your sins, bore the hell of God's wrath on the cross, and joined his righteousness to you in the same way that he joined your sin to him. If we can remember that, loving one another will become far, far easier 
as we seek to live Christ-like toward one another, that the world may know we belong to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. Would you convict our hearts where necessary, strengthen our spirits by your spirit, that we might be those who show Christ-like love to each other. Lord, would you allow our witness to grow as salt and light in this dark and tasteless world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.